Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. I'm going to read the scripture. Can I invite you to stand as I read? When I get to the end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you'd like, you can respond with, thanks be to God. So Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Imagine for a moment that you were given the location of a buried treasure. You were told this treasure is vast. And if you had this treasure, it would change not only your life, but it would change the lives of people around you. It would even change your city. It was a vast treasure. And someone said, this is where it's at. They also gave you the tools, the means by which you could go and uncover that life-changing treasure. And you said, thanks for that information, but actually I need to get back to Netflix tonight. We would say, what are you doing? This treasure would change your life. It could change everything. And you say, well, yeah, but I'll come back to it at a different time. That's actually how many people, many Christians, treat the practice of prayer. Prayer is a treasure that can change your life. Because in prayer, you have an opportunity to commune with the eternal, infinite, living God. To know Him. And not only to know Him, to commune with Him, to grow in a relationship with Him, but also prayer accesses His power. That in a way that I confess is sometimes mysterious, prayer is a means by which God's power is displayed in our world. Prayer changes things. Karl Barth used to say that prayer to pray, to clasp your hands in prayer, is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder and chaos of this world. Prayer is power. And yet, for many Christians, maybe some of you, for many people... The practice of prayer for all kinds of reasons is neglected. And we busy ourselves with other things and we, in many ways, fritter our time away. Well, this infinitely vast treasure is right there before us. Today in our passage, Ephesians 3, we see Paul praying for the church. This is a prayer for you, but it's also a model of prayer. How to pray, what to pray. And there's two reasons why we're looking at this passage on New Year's Eve. The first is, it's just where we are in our sermon series. But the second is, what if 2024 was the year where you really started to pray? 
And what if as a church, 2024 was the year that we deepened our culture of prayer? That we went farther into the presence of God than we ever have before? That we actually began to see God's power poured out in our city in new and surprising and fresh ways? It's possible in prayer. And so we're looking at this passage today at the beginning of a new year because we need to be a people, we need to be a church who prays. So let's look at this passage and see what Paul tells us about to whom we pray, what to pray, and hope in prayer. To whom you pray, what to pray for, and the hope we need in prayer. So first, to whom do you pray? And the answer is there in verse 14. Paul says that he bows his knees to who? To the Father. The foundational, fundamental starting point in prayer is recognizing that the one to whom you pray, the one to whom you speak, is God as Father. Now, whenever I talk about God as Father in a church setting like this, whether it's a sermon or even one-on-one, I always start by acknowledging that some of you have had really hard or maybe even non-existent relationships with your fathers. And so when the Bible tells Christians that they are sons or daughters of God, it can be hard for people to see that as a good thing. Because for you, your relationship with father was really painful, is really painful. But I think we must all be able to acknowledge that even the presence of really bad fathers reminds us what fathers should be like. They should be loving and present and gentle and gracious. And the claim of the Bible is that God is not only the eternally powerful father, but he's the eternally loving father. You could say he's the ultimate father to which all good fathers point and which all bad fathers remind us of what we need. And so we have to acknowledge that when Paul grounds his prayer, when he starts his prayer, for him, prayer is possible because God is father. And for Paul, that meant so many things. Let me just give you four examples. If you know that God is father, how does that impact and change your prayer life? First, it means you have access. A child doesn't need to make an appointment to spend time with her father. Some of you have had Zoom calls with me, and sometimes you see the door opening slowly behind me, and you see the top of a little girl's head just in the bottom of the screen, and she comes right up and says, Daddy, and I grab her and I put her on my lap, and I don't say, Esme, can't you see Daddy's in a meeting? Come back, make an appointment. I'm busy. Come back another time. I'm always happy to see her. Her presence is never an interruption, even when it is, because she has access. No hoops to jump through, just immediate presence whenever she wants it. And I'm always glad to see her. God is a much better father than I am. And that means you, if you're a child of God, if you've been brought into his family through Jesus, you have access. There's never a moment where he doesn't want you. There's never a state you're in that he says, I can't handle that. However you are, whenever you want, you have access to God in prayer. Access, closeness. If God is father, that means the relationship that his people have with him is a relationship of intimacy. See, think about your relationship with your boss. Even if you have a great boss, that relationship is primarily transactional. 
you perform and get a paycheck. And the moment you stop performing, that paycheck might not there be there anymore. <laughs> it's a relationship that's transactional. You do certain things and you get certain things. Mainly it's a relationship of performance. And many of our human relationships, sometimes even romantic ones or friendships, they can have an element of transactionalness to them. I do and I get. But if God is father, that means our relationship with him is not performance. It's just presence. He just wants to be with you. Not because of what you do, but simply because you're his. You don't need to polish yourself up to come into his presence. He won't see you only if you had a really good week and obeyed all the rules. You can come into his presence at any time. Not because of what you've done, but because you're his. Not only is it a relationship of access, of closeness, but also look at verse 15. Paul says of God as father, we have to admire and acknowledge his greatness. Verse 15, Paul talks about how God as father is the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That means Paul saying, listen, God is the source of everything. Everything that exists is creation. He alone is creator. He stands alone in power. And there's nothing that's too hard for him. There's nothing that's a surprise to him. There's nothing that's unknown to him. Every family, every person, everything that is gets its source of being from him. And that means the one that you approach in prayer not only loves you like a father, but is the one who has all power in the world, all power in the cosmos. He's truly great. And finally, not only is he accessible and close and great, but if he's our father, a good father, that means it's goodness that we experience in prayer, that he's eternally loving, unfathomably kind and gracious and generous. And that means his heart for you is a heart of love. If you are in any kind of loving relationship, you know that you can only be as happy as the happiness level of that person in your life. If someone you really love is going through a hard time, it's hard to not be impacted by them. Why? Because your love attaches you to them. Your heart is bound to them. And God says, I love you with an unfailing love. Are you having a hard time? Are you failing him? Are you stuck in some kind of addiction or habit or behavior that you're ashamed of? Are you living with profound regret over bad decisions that you made this year? He's not disappointed. He draws closer to you. The harder it is, the closer he gets. He's unfathomably good and generous. So how do we tie all this together? Story is told of Alexander the Great, that very... Uh, powerful general many, 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 many years ago. And Alexander the Great was said to have a general in his army, someone that worked for him. And this general came to Alexander and said, I'm getting married and I want you to pay for my wedding. And Alexander the Great said, okay, well, tell, you know, tell my steward how much it's going to cost and I'll pay for it. So the general goes to the steward and gives him the amount and the steward goes back to Alexander the Great and says, can you believe this guy? He's asking for this exorbitant amount of money to pay for his wedding. I mean, his presumption, how dare he? 
And Alexander the Great looks at the steward and says, pay the sum. And the steward says, why? This is too much. And Alexander the Great says, don't you see? By asking for something so great from me, he declares that he believes me to be both rich and generous. Pay the sum. I ask you, if someone were to look at your prayer life, if you looked at your own prayer life, would we see that you believe God to be both rich and generous? Do you approach him like that? Someone from whom nothing is too big and nothing is too hard. And ultimately, to know him is the greatest treasure itself. Are we praying like that? That God is father. You are coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. To whom do you pray? God is father. But the second point of our sermon today is not just to see to whom we pray, but Paul actually shows us what to pray for. There's really two prayer requests. Let me show you both of them, and then we'll unpack each of them. In verse 16, Paul, one of his requests is this. He says, may God strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. To be strengthened, Paul says, in your inner being with Christ's power. Prayer request number one. Then jump down to verse 19 and you see prayer request number two. Paul says, I pray that you would know the love that surpasses knowledge. Now, of course, there's other things in these verses. It's very dense. But in sum, those are the two things that Paul is praying for the church for. That Paul is praying for you for and that we should be praying for ourselves. That we should be praying for our church to be strengthened and to know Christ's love. So let's take a few moments to unpack both of those first, that you would be strengthened. Tomorrow starts a new year. For some of you, 2024 is going to be much harder than you expect. I wish that weren't the case, but I'm looking at some of you and I remember what your life was like when 2023 started and what it's like now. You did not know how hard this past year would be. And if that sounds scary, well, (laughs) sorry. Life in this world's often hard, like really hard. And for some of you, 2024 is going to be really hard. Others of you, 2024 is going to be surprisingly great. And I hope that's true for all of you. I really would love that to be the case. And yet there's even danger in that. Because when life is good, we coast and it's easy to forget God. Sometimes when we're strongest, we're actually most vulnerable. So whatever is coming in 2024, what's clear to me is that you're going to need to be strengthened to face it. And that's what Paul's praying for. May you have strength. But notice what he says about this strength. It's very interesting. It's strength in your inner being. That verse 19, or excuse me, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What's Paul praying for? John Stott puts it this way. What Paul is asking for his readers is that they may be fortified, embraced, and invigorated to know the strength of the Spirit's inner reinforcement, to face whatever is going to come their way. Like, do you have the strength to face whatever comes? Whatever happens to come into your lap tomorrow or next month or next year or in 50. 
do we have the strength? And Paul's praying that we would, but notice he says it's an inner strength that comes from Christ dwelling in your heart through faith. Christian strength is unique. And if you're going to understand it, you've got to grasp what Paul's saying here. Because at a surface level reading, you could misunderstand what Paul's saying. When he talks about strength in your inner being, it could almost sound like what Paul is saying. The key to strength is self-confidence. You need to look inside and you need to develop within yourself the resources to face life's challenges. And actually, that's how most people think about courage and strength. There's something hard or difficult in front of me. And so what I need to do is look inside myself to be true to myself, to see who I am, to to know that I have it all within me and to go out and conquer my giants, to conquer my foes. If you know the story of David and Goliath, that's the Goliath way of getting strength. I'm strong, I'm trained, I'm successful. I can vanquish any foe. It's a self-confident way of getting strength. And Paul's talking about the exact opposite. He's talking about a kind of strength that comes into your life, not through self-confidence, but through self-forgetfulness. It's a strength which you get by looking not at what's hard in front of you, but by looking at Christ with you. And saying, even when I'm weakest, his strength is most perfected. In other words, the key to Christian strength is not at looking at yourself, it's looking at something more lovely than yourself. And resting in that. Give you an example. Totally silly, but it'll make the point. I'm very afraid of getting jabs and needles. Like anytime that's coming up for me, the whole week before is kind of stressful. Like it's just how I am, okay? You want to throw shame? Fine, I can handle it. But I get there, I sit down, I'm telling the nurse, I'm probably going to pass out. You should lay me down. Like that's the level that it's at. Except when I have to take my kids to get jabs. If my son or daughter is sitting on my lap and they need to get a jab, they're on my lap. I can watch the needle go in and I have all kinds of strength and courage. Why? Because I care a lot more about them than I do myself. And in that moment, my fear is displaced, not by me looking at my fear and saying, I'm better than that. It's because of love for something else. And the key to Christian strength is not to be stronger than the trials in front of you. You can't. Life is too hard. The key to Christian strength is to say, Christ dwells in me. That his strength is perfected in my weakness. When I have nothing else in the tank, he's there. And I'm going to rest in him. And Paul's praying, I want you to be strong like that. To divert your eyes from self to him. So that you can face whatever comes. Do you know that kind of strength? That's what Paul's praying for. The second prayer request that he has. Verse 19. Notice this phrase. It's stunning. To know the love. That surpasses knowledge. Think about it. Paul says. There's a love. That I want you to know. That is beyond knowledge. Like, how do you know something that's beyond knowledge, surpassing knowledge? And what Paul's saying is simply this. There are some things in life that you learn by studying, and there's some things in life that you learn through experiencing. And for many Christians, the gap or the 
whole in their spiritual life is they know Jesus' love is an abstract set of ideas and they're not experiencing it. And what Paul says, the whole difference, the thing I'm praying for, the thing that I want you to know in your lived experience is the infinitely wide, high, long, deep love of Christ. I don't want you to know about it like you read it in a book. I want you to know about it like a fire that keeps you warm. I want you to feel it, to sense it, to experience it, to taste it. And Paul says, if you have that, it changes everything. Thomas Goodwin was a minister here in London about 400 years ago. And he gave an illustration about this difference between knowing something as a set of ideas and knowing something as an experience that changed my life the first time I heard it. I mean, I read about it. I wasn't there 400 years ago. But he says, look, one day he was walking around in London and he saw a father and son walking and holding hands. And, you know, if you were to ask that son in that moment, hey, kid, who's your dad? He would have pointed and said, that's my dad. And if you were to say, do you know that your dad loves you? The kid would have said, yeah, of course I know he loves me. But as Thomas Goodwin was walking along, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the father bends down, scoops up his son, hugs him, kisses him, and they laugh and they giggle. And then they continue on their journey. And Goodwin says, that's it. In that moment, the love of the father wasn't just a set of ideas. It became real again to that boy. When he was embraced and when he was kissed and when they were laughing together, love that was known became felt. He experienced the truth that were already real about him. Friends, don't you see? If you're a Christian, you are infinitely loved by an infinitely good being. He says, you're already forgiven of all your sin. That in the only court that matters, you've already been accepted. The future is better than you can imagine. You have a family that you're a part of. There's a table that's been set and you have a place at it. Everything sad one day is going to come untrue. The world is going to be put to rights. That's already true of you if you're a Christian. And yet we go into the world and we live just as anxiously and just as selfishly as anyone else. Why? Because you know it, but you don't know it. Because you know Jesus loves you, but you don't live like it. It's not real to you. And so Paul's praying, I want you to know this love that passes knowledge. I want you to experience it, not just to know about it, but to have it shake your bones and bring peace to your heart. And if you did, if I did, this is why we have to be a praying church. It would change everything in your spiritual life and our church in this city. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, another minister in London, put it this way. It's a long quote, but listen, he says this. The main trouble with us, he says, I'm speaking of Christian people, is that we will not realize the truth about ourselves. You see, in this Christian life, there are many problems and difficulties, but more and more, it seems to me that most of our problems, indeed, if not all of them, arise simply from the fact that we fail to realize and to understand and to appreciate as we ought what is the real truth about us. I've increasingly come to the conclusion that somehow or other, 
all of our troubles lie in the fact that we are not applying the scriptures properly. That is, we read them without meditating on them, without taking a firm grip on them and grasping them for ourselves. Pause. That's what Paul's praying for, to grasp the love. Lloyd-Jones says we don't take a firm grasp on them for ourselves. And we realize, or we fail to realize, that these truths are truths about us. It seems perfectly clear that if we did that, our entire lives would be revolutionized. Indeed, our whole demeanor would be entirely changed. How do we close the gap? How do you begin to experience what's already true about you if you're a Christian person? Through prayer, through communion with God, through the spirit of God taking these things and making them alive in your life. That's what to pray for. Strengthen with power to know this love that passes knowledge. So here's the final point of our sermon What hope do we need for prayer? Because some of you right now are saying, I want that. And I've tried. I pray. I've been praying. I've prayed so much. And it's not happening. Nothing happens. Nothing changes. So what hope is there in prayer? What hope can we carry with us into 2024 that as we are a praying church, people praying for strength and to know this love, that our prayers are not just floating off into the ether, but they're actually being heard by this Father. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church. One of the greatest mysteries of prayer, one of the hardest things about spiritual life is unanswered prayer. Some of you right now carry weight and burden because you've cried out to God for things and you don't understand why he hasn't answered those prayers. You, as best as you can discern, think that your prayers align with his will. You are not, unce- I mean, you are, ce- you are unceasing in prayer, you're persistent. And you just don't get it. You don't understand why is he not answering my prayer? And I don't have an answer for you. Other than to say what my old pastor in New York always used to say. That in prayer, God will always give us exactly what we would ask for if we knew everything he knows. In prayer, God will always give you exactly what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. And the only hope that we have in prayer The only hope that I have in prayer is to acknowledge that at some level, he must see something or know something that I can't see. And so the hope that you need going into 2024, if you're going to be a person of prayer, because to pray is to have to wrestle with the mystery of unanswered prayer. The hope that you need, the strength you're going to need to persist in prayer, you need to remember who God is. You need to remember what God has done. And you need to see right now where Jesus is. That's where you get hope for prayer. Remember who he is. Remember what he did and see where Jesus is. Quickly, let's go through that as we prepare for our time of response. First, you got to remember who God is. We've said it already. I'll be brief, but he's father. He's father. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is teaching about prayer and he says this, which of you... 
If your son asked you for bread, would give him a stone. Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Unanswered prayer is a mystery. But non-answered prayers, or at least prayers not answered in the way we want, can't be because he doesn't love us. If he's our father, that means he wants you to experience good more than you want it for yourself. He cares more for your joy than you do. He wants good for you more than you want it for yourself. No father, I mean, <laughs> no father would, if a kid says, hey, give me a piece of bread, would be like, chew on this rock, kid. Like, nobody would do that. And God is infinitely better. And so in a way that I can't understand, when he doesn't answer my prayer, it has to be at some level because he knows something or sees something or has a timeline that is incomprehensible to me. But he's father. You got to remember that. Who he is, he's your father, he's good. Second thing though, what's hope in prayer? Not just remembering who God is, father, but you have to remember what he did. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him freely give us all things? Like you cry out to God and you say, like, I really want this and I'm not getting it. It must be because God doesn't love me. Paul says he already gave you the best thing he could have ever given. He gave you his son. And to know him, to grow in him, to be close to Jesus. That is the thing your heart needs more than anything. And you already have it. Does it mean it's wrong to crowd for other things? Of course not. We're told to pray for things that we need in our life. But to know that any time a prayer seems unanswered, it's not a sign that we're not loved. Because he already gave us the thing that was the most generous, gracious, loving thing he could have ever given us. His son dying in our place for you. You've already been given the greatest gift. So cry out for others. And when you don't get them, trust him. That's what Paul's saying. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done. And thirdly, right now see where Jesus is. The claim of the Bible is at this moment today, like while we're talking Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And he's praying for you. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, right now at this moment, Jesus is interceding for his people. That means he's at God's right hand crying out for you, pleading for you. You see, on the cross, Jesus finished the work of salvation. You're saved, you're free if you trust in him. But as we said earlier, you don't always live like that. So right now at this moment, Jesus is at God's right hand doing what? Praying for you. So that the truths that are already yours would be felt. So that the penny would drop. So that you would live as a person who's infinitely loved and safe and secure. That you would move through this world and face trials and troubles as someone who knows the best is yet to come. I'm safe in God's family. And the future is brighter than all telling. That's what he's pleading for. I hope, it is my prayer, that in 2024, we would be a church that prayed like never before. That you would be a person who prayed like you never have before. 
And even when we fail, even when we're more prayerless than we should be, because let's be honest, for most of us, we'd have to admit our prayer life kind of stinks. Jesus' prayer life does not stink. F.D. Bruner put it this way, we Christians are being prayed for by a person who's very good at prayer. Jesus, always interceding. So we are not our own. Let's relax a little bit and come to Jesus' party. That's the invitation for us this year. That's the invitation for you today. To pray, not in your own strength, but to pray knowing that you're being prayed for by Jesus himself, crying out to God as Father who loves you infinitely because what Jesus did dying in your place and knowing that right now at this moment, he's crying out to you. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for the promises, the reminders of this passage. And we ask as we come now to our time of response that today's sermon and teaching would be much, much more than information. Lord, transform us. We need you. And you've said that the way we access you is through prayer. By communing with you through the power of your spirit. So help us to be a praying people, a praying church, so we can get more of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.